ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Tenth verse, same as the first. Welcome to the tenth, I can I say year or series? That's a good question. I should have thought about that before I got on air. Anyway, whatever, of the minefield where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my decade-nearing co-host. Hello, Scott. <laughs> Hello, Walid. Can I say what I love about what you just did? Yeah? That you inserted brackets in the middle of a sentence and then resumed <laughs> the sentence without missing a beat. I that, to check the transcript. That's, that's something else. That's kind of like speaking, adding footnote in a lower voice and then resuming your normal. There's, there's, something, oh. there's something really special about so that. So is that how you add a footnote orally? Is you use a lower voice? Yes, yes. You have to drop your tone by an octave. Yeah. Why wouldn't it go higher? Because the footnote's normally in smaller text. Yeah, it is. But it's, the, pitch to me. But, it, but it's at the bottom of the page and therefore you oh, need right, to. Yeah. And do you read it quickly? Uh, like you written sh- and spoken by, et cetera, that sort of style? You shouldn't. You shouldn't because, see, we're getting into really wonderful territory here. There, there is a show <laughs> to be done. The minefield is back in 2024. A, I think that's what we've proven here, yeah. There is, a, there is a show to be done on footnotes. Oh, okay. Um, because there is this wonderful tradition of magnificent footnotes, and there's no reason why they should have ever not been part of the main text. In fact, there is within moral philosophy – to anticipate something we may well discuss in some weeks. There is something in moral philosophy. Uh, there is a particular instance where I think one of the greatest sentences ever written is actually at the bottom of a really profound footnote. So why do we do footnotes? I mean, footnotes are, okay, there's the reference, you know, I'm making, yep. I'm quoting something, or this is something you should follow up. This is where I get my information from. And then there's the, this is something that I thought. This is something that I had in mind. This is something that's probably an integral part of the argument, but I don't necessarily want to elevate it to the argument. And yet there's something about the homework. There's something about the background thinking that is often more beautiful, that departs from the academic style, that departs from formality, and yet captures something truly beautiful. That's why so you, what, mustn't, what, you mustn't read footnotes too what, quickly. Well, okay. But what do you make of the argument that as for discursive footnotes, which is what you're talking about there, mm. they either should be in the text because they form part of the argument or they don't need to be there. This is one of those things where it's probably a little bit like an aphorism. There are some arguments that you can't make in full. There are some arguments that you can only gesture in the direction of. And I often find that footnotes, especially really well done footnotes, this is something that maybe doesn't warrant an article. It doesn't warrant a chapter. It doesn't even warrant an entire paragraph. And certainly inserting an entire paragraph would depart too much from the flow of the argument. Nevertheless, it's a kind of cognate matter. It's something that is worthy of being gestured towards. Mm. Uh, And therefore... Write another piece, Scott. Nah. Write another piece. Anyway, how on earth do we get here? Brackets in the middle of sentences, oral footnotes. Yeah. That's where we are. Because it's the minefield and that's what we do. Because it's the minefield. Hey, we venture we, out into the desert, we get lost. We have, after Someone all. Someone comes in a helicopter and picks us up. <laughs> we have, after all, done an entire show about quotations, which... Um, yeah, that's we, true. We should do that's a show true. on plagiarism, by the way. Has there been any political issue more hotly contested over the last two months than plagiarism? Oh, because of Harvard. And other things, yeah. Whatever it was. And fallout. Um, and, all right. What are we doing this year? Well, we, we have got a couple of really nice shows lined up to kick the year off because we we're determined to begin the year on a hopeful note. I don't know about you, but the end of 2023 was downright dark. And some of that darkness has spilled over, but I'm, I'm determined to kick off with a hopeful disposition. Before we get to that though, to mark our 10th year, we have got a kind of special event coming up for Minefield listeners, especially Minefield listeners in a particular city coming up at the end of February. We're doing a, do we call it a live show? We are, I mean, it's, it's a live show, but it's not going to be broadcast live. We're doing a show in front of an audience and not at an external venue either. We're doing it at the ABC South Bank Center in Melbourne on Friday evening, the 23rd of February. The event is free, but you do need to register for it. And if you'd like to register, you can find the details very, very easily through an Eventbrite link. We'll include a link on the 
Mindfield website and also on this week's episode page. So if you click into this week's episode, there'll be a link at the bottom on the Mindfield page. It should be something fairly easy to follow. It's also going to be, I should say, a kind of double show that we're doing. Uh, I'm not going to reveal the topic yet. Do you agree? Yep, I agree. Uh, Good. We're not going to reveal the topic yet, but let's just say it's opposite. It's appropriate to discuss with people and in front of people. And because of that, it's going to be me, Waleed, we'll have a guest, we'll have the room, and we're going to take in the second hour of our recording, we're going to take questions. We're going to discuss those questions. We're going to throw questions back to unsuspecting audience members that never should have lined up behind the microphone in the first place. <laughs> That's my favorite bit. Good. Uh, and then yeah. if- Because you know how people get up to ask questions and really they make a statement. Yes. It's not Q&A, it's A and Q. That's right. That's what it is. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Back at them. It's excellent idea. Yes. How many people are we talking about, by the way, Scott? Uh, 250, 300. So it'll be okay. good. Yeah, it'll be a good group. So I reckon, what did you say? 23rd of February, we're doing it. And then it's broadcast on the radio machine and podcast later. But um, I'd say, what's that, a month away? We should be able to get 300 people in a month, I'd shouldn't be, we? I'd be bitterly disappointed if we didn't. So if you don't want to disappoint me, come along. If you do <laughs> want to disappoint me, come along anyway and just ask a really, really difficult question. It's attendance out of pity. Excellent. <laughs> um, but right. look, we're, we're really looking forward to this. I, I think there is, you know, it does shatter one of my on going illusions that it's just you and me and our guests talking and that nobody else really listens. But all, all the same, it is one of those nice opportunities to engage in not just theoretical conversation or perspective or proleptic conversation, but really to engage in actual conversation with actual listeners and try to, well, again, without divulging the topic, maybe learn something from one another rather than just teaching. So anyway. Real conversation. It's very un Anyway. Do you want to talk about the topic or do you want me to no, well, that would be breaking tradition. It would be and as a way to start our 10th year, I don't think that's... By the way, we're being cheeky saying it's our 10th year, so let's do this. It, this is our ninth anniversary. Uh, like it'll be our 10th anniversary Because it doesn't, it doesn't begin in year one. That's right. Yeah. 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 So I feel like this is something is it... that corporations and football clubs do. Ah, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. I like anyway. that. But anyway, no, I think we should stick with tradition for now. So why don't you line it up for us? All right. So let me just, let me say a little something about what we're doing over the next two weeks. We're going to discuss the twin topics of pervasive mistrust and the possibilities of cultivating trust in a time of pervasive mistrust. In other words, you could think about it as diagnosis and cure, except I don't really think it's a cure. Because if there's one thing we know about democratic political orders, justice is never guaranteed. Advances are never permanent. There is always recalcitrance. There is always backsliding, backstepping. Uh, Advances need to be reaffirmed and recommitted to every day. This is one of the things, by the way, that we did in our quarterly essay that we did, what, 18 months ago now, and that we kind of followed up on in our response to some of the criticism that that essay received One of the things about healthy or just political orders, one of the things that makes them like a healthy relationship, say something like a marriage, is that that relationship cannot be grounded. It cannot be secure in anything external to the relationship between the people themselves. There is something about the ongoing decision commitment to reaffirm that commitment, to simply be prepared to keep going along together to stay with one another, to live through periods of disagreement and failure and grief and even animosity, and to say that there's something so precious about this way of life together that it's simply worth going on with. We can take that next step forward into the next morning, even if the evening seems pretty dark indeed. And it's that process of daily reiteration, reaffirmation, recommittal, Uh, that I think is an underestimated and to some extent even misunderstood aspect of democratic life. We think that because we have things like compulsory voting, because we have things like a constitution, because we have certain traditions, that these things will hold us in place. And I think these things are undeniably important, having these kind of pillars that keep aspects of our common life, let's call it the conditions of our common life, to some extent in place, uh, um, some point of reference to which we can appeal and against which we can bounce or debate. Um, And yet, despite those external elements, there is something 
about the internal renewal of the conditions through which we speak with one another, trust one another, in fact, entrust ourselves to one another, that is quite simply indispensable for the future of any remotely healthy democracy. And when things have reached a point where mistrust becomes pervasive, and not just mistrust of one another, but also mistrust of institutions, mistrust of the very things upon which uh, the architecture of our common life depends, when it reaches a particular point of, let's call it, terminal mistrust, then I think democracy really is on the back foot. There's no basis upon which that democracy can proceed. And I've been keenly aware, Willie, I'm, I'm not sure if you were as keenly aware as I was, that this year, 2024, marks 60 years since the publication of Richard Hofstadter, the great American historian, political theorist, his famous essay, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. It's a remarkable essay. It's one of, I think, the greatest political essays ever written, uh, not just because of its prescience, but also because of its diagnostic power. He says, we tend to think of conspiracies like the clinical diagnosis of paranoia as something that belongs to the fringe, as something that belongs to this extreme side of politics or that extreme side of politics, something that's engaged in by loonies, people who are fundamentally sort of not of sound mind. He said, there is, however, something about not just the American, but he draws particular attention. And remember, he's writing this in the late 50s, early 60s. There is something about the American style, the way of speaking, the way of receiving information, the way of comporting oneself in the world, the way of feeling about elections, for instance, the way of feeling that there are certain things about our common life that are in existential peril, that if we don't fight for them, that if we don't ward off a kind of common enemy, not an external enemy, but an enemy within, if we don't fight for it, then what we regard as being truly precious is going to be taken from us. And he says that this particular mode, he calls it the paranoid style, a way of being in the world, not so much the content of particular conspiracies, but an openness to conspiratorial thinking, what we, I think, would call today conspiracy-mindedness. In other words, you're confronted by a, an allegation of rampant corruption or of the withholding of crucial information, and your initial response is, yep, yeah, that'd be right. I can see that happening. That's the kind of conspiracy-mindedness that can reflect a pervasive sense of mistrust in crucial institutions, mistrust in the received avenues of knowledge around which we can gather around, say, common facts, uh, and also a disposition towards others that sees others within a common community as not really being of us, not really belonging to the political community, but rather representing a threat, a change, something that's going to undermine what we hold dear. So I thought we could begin this first show by asking this simple question. When a democracy reaches a point where we have a tendency to succumb to conspiracy-mindedness, we prefer to disbelieve than to believe. We invest our trust in only specific sources of knowledge that may well be discreetly removed from other people. We don't believe that there are common things around which we can gather and common institutions upon which we can rely. What do we lose when we succumb to a kind of disposition of conspiracy-mindedness. Haven't you answered that in your framing of the question, though? Because you, your starting point is that democracy can't, certainly can't flourish and maybe can't even survive that. Mm. That democracy is something that requires, um, is fidelity the right word? Fidel um, yeah, fidelity may well be the right word, yeah. To certain mediating institutions and then to civic bonds that exist between citizens in a way that's not necessary outside democracy because the citizenry itself is not necessarily irrelevant to the process but not involved in quite the same way. Mm. They're not as deliberative as forms of politics necessarily. I feel like you've sort of presaged the answer. I have, but I've also left gaping holes that I'm hoping that you're going to drive your Well, the, the first car question I had for you is, do you think that's where we are? Hmm, exactly. And if so... What's been the cause of that? So, why, that's, I mean, it's a two-part question. That's very cheeky of me, Scott. But mm -hmm. let me start with the first one. Do you think that's where we are? In the spirit of beginning the year in an optimistic frame. <laughs> yeah. When you say we, I assume you mean this country. I assume you mean Australia. Yeah, but you can take it anywhere if you want. Uh, no, I do not believe that's where we are. And thank God for that. 
I do believe that because so many of our forms of information and so much of our media culture is refracted through and amplified by, say, American media, which really is there. I, mean, I don't think we would necessarily disagree with that. I do fear that there are, let's call it, centrifugal tendencies that are threatening if we take our eye off the ball to kind of pull us apart. So you think we have a direction of travel? Yes, that's right. Okay. Is that a result of external circumstance or is that a result of institutional conduct? <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, the answer is yes. Right. All right. I'll let you elucidate, <laughs> then I've got to follow up on that. Okay, Go cool. on. <laughs> um, look, to some extent, suspicion, mistrust. This is one of the really paradoxical things about democracy, isn't it? Democracy depends upon high levels of trust, and let's call it civic conduct, where we see one another not as enemies or as rivals, but as people into whose hands we can commit our fate, we can commit our future, which just means that elections aren't final, that if my side loses, it's not the end of things, it's not an existential threat. So democracies depend upon trust, and yet democracies are also incubators of mistrust. Um, Part of that mistrust is... Well, they depend upon mistrust as well. Yes, yes, precisely. They depend upon a certain scepticism. Okay, there's the first great big hole in what I said. Because as soon as democracy becomes a platform for credulity and you believe the moral pronouncements of the self-righteousness of a particular politician, or you simply believe that an institution is doing the right thing, uh, in the way that it negotiates and manages its power or its authority. As soon as you believe that there is no scrutiny needed, then what you're doing is you're relinquishing democracy's fundamental disposition towards power, which is that power is not inherent. Power can be taken, power can be given, that there is an imprimatur with the legitimacy that is conferred by people. And uh -huh, but here's the institutional oh, okay. point, right? Yes. So the skepticism <laughs> of this. democracy is surely meant to be embedded in to the institutions within it. Yes, that's right. So we have a parliament. That parliament has an opposition. It has an upper house in Australia. Yep. Uh, they're not in Queensland. But that is a system ostensibly of checks and balances. You have a, an independent judiciary. Massively important thing, by the way, which we don't talk about because I think we take for granted. Mm. But just seeing in some parts of the world, there are people in the streets over this sort of thing. Right. A politicised ju judiciary is the most appalling, I think. It might about. be about the worst problem you can have. I agree. So you could, if you wish, frame an independent judiciary as an institution of scepticism. Mm. I mean, that, that's probably a bit simple because it can be an institution of affirmation, but you get what I'm going. It, it, it has that sort of role. You have traditionally conceived, anyway, the fourth estate. So that is the media which plays or is meant to play an accountability role and therefore embodies a kind of institutional scepticism. So I suppose the question then becomes, to what extent is this sort of inbuilt institutional scepticism meant to offset mm -hmm. a kind of individual's disposition towards scepticism as a democratic citizen? Are citizens in a democracy expected to subcontract their scepticism out to these institutions mm. that will That's a nice do the job? Mm. Or is that meant to be an ethos that they take on for themselves? Mm. But see, then we reach the terminal question, which is what happens when the court itself becomes the object of cynicism or scepticism? What happens when the media becomes the object of scepticism or cynicism? Which is exactly the American case. That's right. And I think to yeah. some extent it's also our case. Less because so in Australia with the courts. Less so. Oh, yes, yes, that's, it. that's undeniably correct. Although you still find, correct me if I'm wrong, but it strikes me that the sense of the inadequacy of the courts to render justice has been not a pervasive thing, certainly not a steady drumbeat, but I'm hearing it more over the last four years than I can remember hearing it before. On what? On things as diverse as asylum seekers uh, through to uh, certain forms of indigenous recognition after Mabo. Mabo, to some extent, was the kind of the apogee. Um, and then after that, there have been a number of cases where the response has been from activists that the court really hasn't aligned itself with the principles of justice. There's been a Betrayal, if you like. Again, it's not as pronounced here. It's not as pronounced yeah, here. Yeah, I've got to say, I've very rarely heard okay, okay. any of that. Oh, okay. And look, I might depend who you're hanging out with. 
that's not a mainstream discourse in Australia. By no, and large, Australians don't know who their judges are. And when a court makes a pronouncement, I'm actually struck by how readily in Australia people say, oh, well, I guess that's the truth. Hmm. So if someone is, I don't know, convicted of something, everyone proceeds as though this is now an incontrovertible established fact. And if someone is acquitted of something, then a similar thing, not always, but yeah, often not, prevails. Not always, not always. Yeah, yeah but I, yeah. if you've polled, I don't know, 10,000 Australians and asked them to name a judge, I don't know how many could do it. Well, let's just point out, let me put it this way, let me put my sense this way, yeah. that there have been instances if we think about, say, the Sharman case from a couple of years ago when Justice Goldberg found on behalf of the three teenagers, I believe, that the minister for the environment had a uh, legal responsibility for the care of future generations. Yeah. That was in many respects a remarkable ruling. And then the way that it was overturned in many circles was regarded as not so much a failure of the courts, but a sign or an indication of the curtailed or limited concepts of justice to the world as we currently find it. I think there were similar things that were being said around both the conviction of, say, Cardinal Pell and then his subsequent acquittal. There are interesting and I think maybe to some extent portentous senses of the limitations of the way that justice is currently yeah. conceived. I mean, I, we're at risk of banging on about the courts forever, but I I don't know that those cases prove your point. Okay. So, so take the Pell case. I think what happens in the Pell case is that everyone's response, when I say everyone, I don't literally mean everyone, but a mm. lot of people's responses to that case are jaundiced by the positions they take into that case. Yep. I agree. And sometimes what is really their disappointment in the outcome uh, on either side, so whether it was your disappointment in the trial outcome or the appeal outcome, that then becomes expressed as anger towards the court rather than some kind of thoroughgoing critique of the judicial yes, system. Yes, I agree. Right. In the same way, and I don't mean to belittle it because that's obviously far weightier than the example I'm going to give, but in the same way as anger towards referees in a sporting contest when your team's on the wrong end of a decision or something like that, I've sat in enough crowds to know what's happening there actually is not a fully formed determination that the umpire or the referee has made the wrong call, but actually an expression of frustration because that decision has harmed your team's chances and your team might be losing. And so it builds in that sort of way. So in other words, it's an outcome-driven thing. Okay, can I make a counter, please? Sure. So one of the consequences of the ubiquity of sports betting now, however, especially in American sports, yeah. is that the reaction to rulings on the part of referees and even reviews, so reviews after the match or, say, video review in the course of the match itself, have been corrupted by the suspicion that the league, say, in the interest of money, ratings, or whatever, is trying yeah. to script a particular outcome. They want two teams to go up against one another. They want a particular yeah, outcome yeah, yeah. from this. The league so, wants this team to win. There's all sorts of conspiracy yes, theories. Yes, there like is. That. Okay. Yes. Now, now they have, you know what? This is actually fruitful for where we're going. Because that's it, right. That probably as much or even more than anything else shows the increasing fashion towards conspiratorial thinking. Exactly right. All I'm saying is I don't think that style of thinking really prevails in relation to the courts in Australia. Mm, I agree. And when you put a couple of cases up, like the Pell case, that is such a, a rare situation because of its political silence and because of its media salaciousness. And I, almost nothing about that, I think, gets read across into an institutional distrust of the courts. Mm. The media, totally different story. The ABC... Mm -hmm. Totally different story compared to the way the ABC would have been seen, I don't know, 20 years ago? Yep. Much more contested, much more fraught, much more conspiratorial thinking about it, or even if not conspiratorial thinking, than thinking that places it into a grander narrative about the nature of society, the nature of politics, the nature of cultural power, and so on. And the disproportionate allocation of power and influence. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now, now, this raises, I think, just uh, two related points that I think are really important to point out before we get to our guest. Yeah. Um, to say 
that we may well be living in a time of pervasive distrust, pervasive mistrust, where we have lost faith in a number of our institutions that used to be common sources of shared information around which we could gather and meet one another and discuss and deliberate in good faith. And we've lost confidence in the ability of our opponents. I, again, I don't think we're here in Australia. I don't. I just don't. But the United States is absolutely there, where the idea of being ruled by one's opponents is now the end of a nation, the end of an entire way of life. And people are campaigning upon that basis. We cannot be ruled by these people because they represent something that uh, approximates an existential threat. That becomes then a basis upon which one campaigns, one gets out the vote, uh, one selects or deselects candidates. So there's that aspect of, uh, of mistrust. To critique that doesn't mean we ought to, as a matter of faith, give in to forms of credulity. Um, I think that, again, would be democratically irresponsible. And one of the ways in which one can truly, I think, invest one's faith in democracy is because we have a particular conception of power, being able to be scrutinized, being able to be taken away. But I think here's where the scrutiny of power, especially as it's been wielded by the media, is is an interesting part of this particular equation. I mean, if you go back right, say, to the 1960s, you have journalists even then quite sort of conservative journalists who have no real regard for the wielding of power, have very high levels of suspicion about the power and the imprimatur of the state, saying that, you know, there is scrutinizing a politician. There is scrutinizing a platform. There is scrutinizing, say, the underlying motivations. But then there comes to be a particular style of reporting. And I think Henry Fairley is one of the greatest critics of this. There's a particular style of reporting whose goal, whose telos it almost seems to be to eradicate the very conditions of possibility of faith in our common life, as if there's no vocation, no profession more ignoble than the politician, that to be a politician is to be deceitful, is to be corrupt, and so on. So there is a form of media being in the world. There is a way that the media then contributes to our common life that goes beyond scrutiny and that, that cultivates I think something even a little bit more pernicious than that. Something Would you say social media is only an exaggeration of that phenomenon? That's exactly right. Because then when you have epistemic fracture, when you have not so much the eradication of trust, but no common object of trust within which we can gather, deliberate, but rather we are fragmented into our own sources of discrete authority, that then becomes something really concerning. And finally, Walid, and this is the only thing for me that really fills me with despair, in 2024, around 2 billion people are going to the polls this year in the U.S., in the U.K., in India, in nations throughout the EU. We are on the precipice of our first series of democratic elections conducted in the conditions of widely available generative AI. The way that these things can spread, the way that these things can influence even if they are subsequently debunked, a salacious deep fake that comes out, say, a week before a serious election and tips things, as we saw recently in Slovakia, that tips things in the direction of a particular candidate. You know, those are the kinds of things, I think, that aren't possible outside of conditions that are already, I think, seething with the degree of distrust, the degree of mistrust that already uh, regards... Um, mainstream media, the statements of politicians, the threat posed by opposition parties, and so on, askance. I think there's something there that's also relies on a certain credulity towards other voices. This is the interesting <sighs> thing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The preparedness to believe fake information, right. and sometimes even to interrogate whether it's fake. There's a credulity. It's just that the nature of authority has shifted and fractured mm. in lots of ways. Anyway, it's about time we had a guest, Scott. And our guest is Rachel Busbridge. She's Senior Lecturer in Sociology at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. Rachel, it's wonderful to finally have you on the show. Yeah, it's great to speak to you as opposed to just write to you. <laughs> <laughs> what have we said that's got your goat? <laughs> um, I, I suppose I, I guess I'll just come in. So as a sociologist, what I'm, I suppose I'm less interested in why people think and act in the ways they do and more interested in the social and political conditions that make certain ways of thinking and acting possible. 
So you've already, I think there's a couple of important developments which you've already hinted to in the discussion that have made, I suppose, for a rise in conspiracy thinking, conspiracy theories. The first is a technological shift that we've seen since the early 90s and in particular the rise of the internet, of social media and probably increasingly AI. Um, And we've basically seen a context where that's allowed more opportunities for the dissemination of fringe ideas and it's also kind of eroded in some ways those traditional keepers of knowledge, so the media, education, the courts, etc. But I do think there's a second development which is really relevant here, and it's a more recent development. But I do think we need to recognise that there has been a bit of a concerted push, particularly from the right side of politics, in order to shift the bounds of discourse, in order to, I suppose, make certain fringe ideas more palatable to the mainstream. Um, And the best example here would be Donald Trump. Like Trump is the perfect example of this. Um, he's a master of shifting that Overton window. So going so far to the extreme that a merely radical idea looks, you know, quite reasonable in comparison. So I think there are other things going on under, I suppose, uh, less visible behind the scenes that are, are making for these types of conditions. But so I would say the Overton window is being stretched at the other end as well. And social media has been a major driver yeah. of that, often around vast institutional claims of malfeasance and things like that and the pushing of particularly forms of identity politics that have taken... The evidence of it, I think, is that that sort of, you know, what do we call it, the diversity inclusion type agenda, that that's now corporatized. So every company's got policies on it. They're running, you know, mega corporations are running workshops on white privilege or (laughs) these sorts of ideas that belonged kind of in the academy and not even in the mainstream academy for, uh, you know, 10, 20 years ago have sort of become now, people speak it fluently. So there's a shift in the Overton window there. What I find interesting about it is perhaps what we're seeing is the Overton window being stretched to such an extent that it becomes incoherent. And so what ends up happening is you can more or less say anything at the same time as you can say nothing because it just depends on who you're talking to. And so ever more self-selecting subcultures gather around whichever, I don't know, rhetorical axis you, you want to choose. And that makes democracy difficult because as long as people are gathering in those subcultures, the, the, the cross-pollination that democracy requires becomes very difficult. And that's a communicative... I mean, that goes back to your technological point, I guess, but that's a communicative problem. And I, I'm not sure how democracy overcomes that. But let me ask you on the back of that, because I was going to ask this of Scott, but I'll actually ask you, do you share Scott's assessment that Australia is not quite in that situation? And if so, given the technological environment is pretty similar, how has it avoided it? Um, So I think the general data is showing us that Australia is on a path to polarisation. So the most recent Edelman Trust Barometer, I think, placed us somewhere between moderately polarised and in danger of severe polarisation. So we're definitely going in that direction. Um, There's a lot of other indicators that social cohesion is going, trust in government is declining. There are a few things in Australia that I think, you know, we're not the US, and I think there are some social factors which guard against it. Dispositional as well. Yeah, and, and like historically we've had really high levels of social trust. Like I think as an Australian you don't really realise how high social trust is here until you go overseas. It makes for very naive travellers in many ways. <laughs> but if you look at other things like support for multiculturalism remains fairly high. Um, even in the wake of the failed voice referendum, support for Indigenous education, various things, reconciliation supports, that remains very high. And it's also the case, I think, the Scanlan showed that Australia still does pretty well on neighbourhood and community connections and belonging. So people feel at home, they feel connected, they feel like they have things in their local community. So I think there's a few safeguards. Maybe safeguards is the wrong word. Just maybe like little breaks for the time being to Mm. kind of... But we're certainly on a path where we could go full polarisation. And I think the influence of... American culture, politics, um, social media, you know, this is really important here and potentially driving us further along. Can I go back just very briefly to Waleed's question or comment about the Overton window? Because it always has struck me that while conspiracy theories 
and the amenability of conspiratorial thinking within democratic orders, while it's obviously a perversion of democracy, I mean, you're trying to say, okay, this group won the election. They appear to be the majority, but they're not. They're instead a powerful minority that's being manipulated or overinflated by, you know, shadowy forces. There's, a, there's an extent to which, you know, that kind of conspiratorial thinking is just obviously, obviously a kind of debased version of democratic existence. But it has struck me increasingly that one of the strange things about both left-wing and right-wing how can we call it, conspiracy-mindedness, is that to some extent, they're also demonstrations of very high levels of capital V value. These are expressions of love of a principle or of a nation. And because one side values capital J justice overall, certain things are able to be suspended like due process or democratic deliberation or to some extent even elections in the interests of justice. And on the other side, the idea of the capital and nation is so precious and so under threat by insidious forces or the other side of politics that all I'm sorts... I'm not sure I agree on that last point. Really? Yeah, I think the love of nation and the concern for nation is far more, to use terms that I've swore I would never use, yeah. far more a right-wing concern than a left-wing one. Yes, did I not say that? Well, sorry, I thought you were saying this was this was like a pervasive thing. Oh, right. No, 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 sorry. these expressions of, of cynicism and of conspiratorial thinking. No, sorry. So, so on, on the one hand, you have the, the left side, you have the capital J justice concern. On the right side, you have the right, capital okay, N nation concern. And yep. because those concerns are almost transcendental concerns, because they're expressions of love and devotion for an ideal, because they're vertical concerns, in other words, and this was Richard Hofstadter's point, it justifies almost anything in service of that particular cause. Yep. And that's, that's the thing that I suppose really concerns me, is that we have these expressions of, they might be perverse, they might be debased, but they're nonetheless forms of love. They're expressions of devotion to a particular ideal. And yet because of that, the very thing, the processes, the procedures, let's call it the horizontal cultivation of our ability to live together, um, those are the things that are sacrificed, and we are increasingly prepared to sacrifice them because we think that what is lost by losing the others is far greater than losing our ability to live with one another, to trust one another. I think there's kind of a looming spectre here, and that's populism. Mm. Um, and mm. I think the rise of populism has in many ways been entangled with an increasing prevalence of conspiracy theories. Mm. And if you think from a populist perspective, conspiracy theories are quite useful, Right. Like the main populist kind of division is between the elite and the people. Um, and to talk about or invoke conspiracy theories is a way for a populist leader to connect themselves with the people and distance themselves from the elite. So like Trump is a great example of that, but Bolsonaro in Brazil as well. So, yeah, I think that's a, another factor that's playing a role. Mm. But the people, that. the people there become the stand-in for the nation, don't they? The, the real people, the real majority who's committed, well, I, I suppose I mean, there's left-wing populism as well, the real people who are committed to justice and equality versus the people who only seem to be in the ascendancy, who are only artificially inflated because of, I don't know, Russian trolls or because of left-wing conspiracy. That's why I think this is almost a debased form of democratic thinking, because it's still a concern with the people, the majority. Uh, but at the same time, it's in the thrall of an epistemic fracture where you can't believe your eyes. You have to always refer back to these kind of shadowy forces that are artificially inflating things. I, I'm just thinking about we're having this conversation in a really interesting week. It's the week of Australia Day and all the debates and angst and defences and pyrotechnics that that sets off. Although, to be fair, it hasn't as much this year, and I think that's probably because of the voice referendum. Mm. But nonetheless, still there. The Australian cricket team not using the word Australia, the phrase Australia Day when they're playing on that day, etc. It's also the week that the Albanese government has broken a promise on stage three tax cuts. Both of these things are things that raise questions of trust, right? The broken promise, obviously, in so many ways. You've got that grab, which I think we'll see endlessly in the lead up to the next election, probably, of Albanese saying, my word is my bond, suddenly broken promise, etc. The Australia Day stuff, the fact that people are getting very uncomfortable it's now reaching a point where big mainstream institutions are not really wanting even to use the phrase, right? 
at the same time as there's a vociferous defence of it. The Australia thing is kind of, I mean, there's two ways you could read that. One is to say this is evidence of the inherent deceit, the inherent myth-making, the inherent lying that the nation, or to be specific, the nation of Australia is built on. And so institutional suspicion straight away. Or you could look at it and say, well, nations change their self-understanding all the time. Australia Day reflected a certain self-understanding that wasn't trying to lie, but it was just how people saw themselves as an outgrowth of the British Empire, et cetera, and we evolve, and now we've evolved to a point where we're starting to think we want to make ourselves in a different way, et cetera. Less conspiratorial, less institutionally driven and so on. But I guess what the point I'm making here is there's always grist for this mill, right? And in this week we've had quite a bit of it. Is there something that's making us more inclined to mill it in a conspiratorial way? Um, I'm really not sure, apart from that shift that I think I we can discern. With the Australia Day, what I have found is really interesting. So this is one of the areas that I research and I'm interested in change the day and changing attitudes. So every time the polls come out every year, I'm like, oh, what yeah. are they going to say now? And one of the things that the polls are saying is that there is declining support for Australia Day on January 26. And what I found super interesting this year, um, this was also in the IPA survey, so I think it went down from about 75% people in favour in 2019 to 63, 62 this year. And the way that the IPA explained this is not like the second way you framed it, Waleed, like, oh, there's just a shift and that's what happens in democracies and we adopt, mm. you know, renew our national self-understanding and that's normal. They framed it as almost evidence that some conspiracy is working. Right. Like, this elite, like we are in danger now, like we need to fight, otherwise we're going to lose this. Um, and what they actually used as key evidence for this is the fact that for young people in particular, that's the lowest levels of support for January 26. And for them, that was a clear example of the fact that there's indoctrination happening in higher education, in universities, so this conspiracy, you know, mm. it's, it's working. And I think what's scary to me is that it kind of ups the ante on political action, because if something becomes existential, it becomes a matter of survival, then you can justify a whole bunch of different things. I know that Woolworths example, like yeah. it's uh, <laughs> the kind of typical thing that comes up at this time of the year, but I think there is something Interesting actually, that didn't catch on though. No, it didn't. That's but in some ways I feel like it should have more because of the fact of that person who went and graffitied that Woolworths mm. store, held a flare out the front. And I mean, this is not violence. No one went in and, you know, hurt a, an employee or something. Mm. But that's a that's a step forward. Like someone's mm. taken that into the real world and said, I'm going to act on this. Um, and so that's a, the scary thing for me when these kind of conspiratorial frames come up. Um, all, all you need to do is kind of send out a few calls, a few dog whistles, and, and see if someone's going to listen and actually act. Right. And is it that we're in an era where there are more dogs able to hear it? Maybe. What, <laughs> yeah. what is it that makes, I mean... Would a poll like that have been interpreted in that conspiratorial way 20 years ago? Or is this a new move in the way that we think about politics? Probably I don't think it would have been interpreted in a similar way. Um, but I think a lot of conspiracy theories are now much more common in the mainstream than they were before. Um, a really good example of this is the cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. Now, this is like a, a super fringe, originally American paleoconservative conspiracy theory, this idea that political correctness is designed to undermine Western civilization. You would have never heard of this before. It, it's actually entered into the Australian lexicon, I think, predominantly through the Murdoch media in 2016 with the safe schools. So we actually have, a, I suppose, a public discourse in certain ways that's primed to hear conspiracy theories, to hear mm. conspiratorial terms. All right, then. If it seems we are becoming more dispositionally conspiratorial, We've spoken about the technological elements of it, but how much of it is to do with a sense of institutional failure? That is, a sense that something's amiss that wasn't amiss. In other, to put it another way, if we felt that our economy was pretty stably successful and we felt we weren't seeing lots of examples where things just didn't quite add up, there comes a point where in a particular social environment, conspiratorial thinking becomes the most reasonable way of making sense of what you see. I know this, for example, to pick for a totally different context, people who live 
under dictatorships, the way they will respond to any event, people I know who've been in that situation, the way they interpret any event is not by asking what's the explanation, what does the reporting say, et cetera. The first question they ask is who does it benefit? They're the ones responsible because they live in an opaque environment where that actually seems to be the best epistemological guide they can muster to make sense of what they're seeing. And if we are in an environment where inequality is is increasing, cost of living is becoming difficult, but we're not visibly poorer because the inequality means there's still heaps of money being spent on, I don't know, Taylor Swift tickets or, you know, restaurants or whatever it is, that actually we're slowly finding ourselves in a set of social conditions where conspiratorial thinking seems not just to be the savvy thing or the fashionable thing online or whatever, but actually the easiest way to make sense or the, perhaps to you the most sensible way to make sense of what you're seeing and experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the key thing here is like conspiratorial thinking, this is a symptom of a whole bunch of weaknesses in democracy and a whole bunch of social issues. It's not the cause. Like conspiratorial thinking, conspiracy theories can exacerbate weaknesses in democracy. They can help promote division um, and kind of increase lack of trust in institutions. But I think they're symptomatic of deeper issues going on. Do you agree with that, Scott? The way you've discussed it often frames it the other way. Um, Yes, I do agree with that. But let me just give it one further little tick over that in many respects, conspiratorial thinking isn't just a form of individual or individuated disenchantment with the world. What Frederick James once called cognitive mapping, a way of making sense of a world that otherwise just doesn't make sense. It can also be the expression of an intensified form of solidarity. I mean, one of the interesting things about the way that the self-selection of certain forms or avenues of knowledge work today and the way in which conspiracy theories or let's call it filling in the blanks is often outsourced or crowdsourced. You know, help me make sense of this. Uh, So you put it out to people to, okay, this is what I see or this is what you don't understand or this is the report that I read on whatever. And you find that a form of, let's just call it debased solidarity can then end up forming around forms of specialized or not necessarily publicly available or else publicly uh, overlooked knowledge. And these then become, I mean, you know, conspiracy theories are always religiously overcharged, aren't they? These then become, we are the remnant. We are the people who are now holding fast to the tradition that was and that will once again be in ascendancy once we've escaped this particular form of darkness. So I think, I mean, Rachel's right that it's more of a symptom than it is uh, some kind of external threat, but it can also be one of the ways in which, it, again, it kind of perversely almost diagnoses something that has gone wrong with our already existing feelings of democratic disconnection. But then my question is, why does it show up, Rachel, in what you might think are apolitical and unimportant things, sport fandom, um, pop culture fandom, like these sorts of things. Why has it become so pervasive? I think in thinking about this from a democratic perspective, we actually also need to make a distinction between different types of conspiracies. Because obviously the conspiracy that a referee is, you know, decided to make a particular call so that you don't get your bet on a sport match, Mm. that's quite benign in the overall scheme of things, right? It's not going to do much. Mm. So I think we need to distinguish between more benign conspiracy theories and I suppose what we can call bad conspiracy theories. And we really need to think about what it is that makes a conspiracy theory particularly problematic, particularly dangerous, particularly risky for democratic societies. Um, One of the answers to that that's been talking about in the literature most recently is thinking about it from an ethical perspective, Um, to just take it from an epistemic perspective of like faulty reasoning or, you know, lack of evidence. Um, That just doesn't quite fly and it doesn't really allow us to distinguish between what's what's dangerous and what's not. So, yeah, I think there's there's key ethical and moral questions that we need to be asking in distinguishing between these things. But see, I, I, I know on one level what you're saying is obviously right, but on another I'm not sure I accept the distinction only because I think when something becomes a habit of mind, a way of being in the world, then there will be very dangerous examples of it. Right. And so... And to say, well, we're only going to really concern ourselves with it when it becomes a really serious thing, I don't know, that feels to me a little bit like maybe symptomatic, maybe treating 
symptoms. The reason I raised the the pop culture fandom thing or the sport thing. So indulge me for a second. I'm a big sports fan, Scott less so. I find my experience of sport being made consistently worse by the fact that everybody thinks there is some grand conspiracy against their team mm. and it becomes difficult to have a reasonable conversation with someone about this thing that we both love. Is that something that's gotten worse over time? Yeah. Okay. I think absolutely. Mm. Like clearly, yeah, clearly so. There's always been ribbing. There's always been banter. This is not that. This the is sense- this is the equivalent of uh, it's not just our side lost and we need to regroup this election. Uh, sorry, after this election and come back together for the next. There's something that in losing we've lost something irretrievable. But there is also something bigger at play. Mm, it's not just right. that we lost. There's some grand injustice going on. And then it becomes difficult even to have conversations with supporters of your own team who are on board with this, where you go, well, you realise actually that probably was a foul and maybe that wasn't a goal. And or the, and then suddenly so now you're a sellout, right? So in other words, I get that the whole thing of sport is unimportant, but I don't know that those fraught social relationships are unimportant. And I don't know that the fact that that shows up there and it shows up in pop culture you know, fandoms and stand culture and all the, the fact that it does all that says to me there's something very deep that actually is a is a problem here that's not visible if we only look at, you know, the the extreme and obviously problematic or difficult things that show up in politics. Yeah. It kind of raises a question of how much is too much because there's always going to be conspiracy theories. And like you mm. said before, there's legitimate reasons why certain societies, certain places, they will be more inclined to conspiratorial thinking than others. So it's a question, yeah, how much is too much? Can you even quantify that? I don't think you can. What's a healthy amount of conspiracy yeah, exactly. theorising? <laughs> well, well let's, let's just acknowledge that there really are conspiracies. I mean, there That's really the problem, are it? conspiracies, which I think is why we need to be much, much, much more careful in a time when charges of conspiracies are being wielded and used by both sides of politics. And, I mean, just think about... Think about the charge of Donald Trump being engaged in a vast conspiracy and at the same time Donald Trump's supporters and Donald Trump himself saying that the election was stolen by means of a vast Mm. conspiracy. There is a kind of bipartisan use of conspiracy here, which is both gesturing to, I I think you're right, Willie, to kind kind of cultural disposition where we are prepared to indulge in. We are prepared to engage in conspiratorial mindedness. And at the same time, because there really are conspiracies and because skepticism really can be a good thing, because scrutiny really is an undeniable good within our common life, um, we simply need to be much, much more careful when we evoke that particular term. We are sadly out of time, Rachel, but thank you so much for helping us kick off 2024. It's been wonderful to have you in. Thank you. That's Rachel Busbridge, who's Senior Lecturer in Sociology at Australian Catholic University. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefields, which is done, Season 10 continues next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.